Oh my god, what am I doing? Hi, welcome to Just Thinking Out Loud. My name is Desiree. I have a guest today. His name is Bo Weingard. Before I introduce him, I would just like to say that this is JTOL, that's Just Thinking Out Loud's first live stream. So this is an accomplishment for me. I'm very excited to, to be doing it. Um, I'm just gonna give my introduction of Bo and then also let him introduce himself. Uh, I know Bo as a rogue, rogue academic because he uh, was canceled. I'm actually not sure which institution he was teaching for, but we're gonna get into his experience as an academic and then sort of give an overview of his opinions on major political topics and end with a Q&A, um, some of the questions from Twitter and and then maybe if you guys have additional questions, I probably or we probably won't be able to get to all of them. So thank you both for coming on today. And would you go ahead and uh, introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm a I have a PhD in social psychology, and I like that rogue rogue academic. I'll take that. Um, yeah, I was terminated from a job, and now I am doing political stuff, doing research for a book and you know just writing essays here and there when I can okay um I think we'll all be interested in hearing about what your book is on and about before we get to that though could you just talk about how you I guess briefly what was your journey into academia and then what happened including the timeline like it's it's been a while now since I've been following you let's just get into your your background so the the timeline of academic um i would say this is i got interested in human population variation as a graduate student and that is probably the great taboo of all taboos in academia uh, perhaps that was partially why I was attracted to it, but I also just find it very fascinating and I'm interested in human evolution and, you know, it's hard to study human evolution without thinking about population variation. That made my future career difficult, though, because it probably hurt my chances to get a job. Uh, I think my first year on the market, I didn't, I, I think... I don't think I even got an offer. I maybe got like one interview. I finally was able to get a job. And then uh, my first year actually went reasonably well. But then my second year, early in my uh, early, I think it was like October or something, um, I gave a talk at the University of Alabama. And I had sent the the topic was on human variation or the evolution of human variation. And I sent my presentation to the person who invited me. So the person approved it and said, this looks excellent. I got there. And when I got there, uh, apparently other professors there had read a, a, a site called rat wiki or it's rational wiki. It's not actually rational it's basically a political hit job and it has all sorts of nasty things about me most of which aren't true or, or they're pulled out of context or tendentiously framed and these professors had read that and they refused to meet with me 
which I thought was almost comical that professors wouldn't even meet with me to ask my views about things because apparently I was so toxic from this website that they read. Um, and then I, I had a talk later that night and they didn't cancel it. I thought maybe they would cancel it. They didn't. But everybody who came was clearly hostile to me. And they did. They let me finish my talk. And then they just, you know, every question was, why are you doing this? What are you doing? You're a racist. This is eugenics. You know, it's a lot of nonsense. Nevertheless, I tried to answer every question I could. And in fact, I stayed after after the Q&A for, I don't know, another 50 minutes and got berated by students who came up to me one after another <laughs> to tell me how despicable I was. Um, anyway, it was an unpleasant experience, but I moved on. Unfortunately, somebody there had written an article for the paper, and that article somehow made it w its way to my bosses. And so I had to have a meeting with my boss at the university about this and actually that first meeting was fine it went well um you mentioned october but i'm not sure what year like you, you said october something happened but when which october like i my brain can't remember because everything's just going so so quickly was this october last year or the year before i i, I don't yeah remember. It, yeah last October yes um so 2019 okay and at this meeting that you had or I guess your was it a presentation wherever people came up to you did any of them actually respond to whatever you actually said or was it just accusations towards you yeah that's a good question um there were a few questions about what I had said, mostly critical, but that's fine. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm happy to address the criticisms of the empirical framework that I provided. Most of it, however, was about the morality. And then a lot of it was people had read art, other articles that I had written and they came and asked me about, they, they would pull quotes from those articles and they would read well, you wrote this, and they would read this quote completely out of context, and they were asking about that instead of the actual presentation that I gave. So I would say 95% of the, the questions and the complaints were not even really about the empirical argument that I forwarded. They were about either other things that I had written or just the moral qualms that they had with it. Okay, um, I don't want to get into the actual argument yet, but I want to keep talking about this academia thing sure. because you mentioned that mm -hmm. you you know you're interested in something you want to talk about human or you wanted to look at into human evolution, and um, mm -hmm. I think a lot of people are curious about what it's like being in uh, academia um, and maybe you know, being pulled towards something intellectually that you're not allowed to? Like, have you or did you uh, encounter many people who maybe wanted to look into a certain topic, maybe what you're talking about, um, and then they felt mm -hmm. like they couldn't? And do you think that 
I, I mean, like I'm on the outside, but I perceive academia as very, very repressive um, because um, to me, like intellectual freedom is really important. And that is what academic institutions mm-hmm. are supposed to stand for. But that's not what they are. They're more used as uh, political tools, I actually think, because people want to respect um, the process that goes into thinking and because the I guess the world at large, the world at large and possibly politicians understand that they start to co-opt academia from its initial intent because people respect it to to kind of make it um, serve the needs of of politics and so it becomes something else that is not actually intellectual pursuit and what so I guess my question is what is it like being there Um, and someone specifically was uh, asking in the 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 Twitter questions that I posted earlier, what advice would you give uh, to someone who might be, you know, in that in that situation? Did I encounter people who wanted to study similar things or things and they didn't because they were afraid to? Yes, that happens all the time. Uh, it happens more with people who just want to talk about it and are afraid to. So maybe they're not so interested in it that they want to study it, but they do want to talk about it. And they, they would just tell me um, it's not worth it. In fact, many people told me when I was in grad school, for example, wait until you have tenure. You know, like, don't pursue this topic now. It's not worth it. You know, you're only going to hurt your career, et cetera, which they were correct. I, I did. Um, uh so yes, there is a lot of that. It's it's. I don't want to. I think a lot of the way that the censorship works, though, it's not so. A lot of people don't care, so they're not worried about it. They don't want to study it. You know, maybe they would listen to it if you talk to them about it, but they're not in, so interested that they want to study it. So they don't pay a lot of attention to it. I think that's a lot of what happens. Um, and so. It's not that big of a deal to them. Okay, I can't talk about human variation. Yeah, we should be able to talk about it, but who cares? I'm not going to risk my career to make some point about this. I think that's a lot of what happens there. Um, And yeah, I think, to to get to your point, it's unfortunate because I agree with you. Um, Academia should be this place that's sort of like cordoned off from the rest of society in which people debate openly and honestly about difficult topics without questioning each other's motives, without insulting each other, and definitely without hurting each other's careers. Um, I was very depressed when I got into academia and saw it up close and personal. It was very disappointing just to see how infected with politics and really pettiness it was you know just people being incredibly rude and impolite to each other and not doing charitable interpretations and accusing each other of malevolence um yeah just a lot of stuff like that that's unfortunate okay and that the the follow-up question to that was um what advice would you would you give to someone like I I think it's not worth it even though I'm you know hosting this video I actually don't think I don't think it's worth it <laughs> to discuss these topics like I think they're important but I think they're I think that they're like not gonna get anywhere and I understand that like I I'm like almost contradicting myself by saying that um but like for me I I think it really made a difference 
not being not being from the US. So like I don't understand I didn't understand like what topics are like more taboo or, or not um the way I do mm-hmm. now. But like it's too late for me. Like I've already like opened opened that door and like I'm glad I opened it because now I I don't I'm not afraid of it anymore. And like when I first encountered this topic I, I didn't like it. Um <laughs> I really didn't and I didn't look into it for a long time. Um but mm-hmm. like what advice would you give uh to someone not necessarily the the human variation stuff but any other i don't know if there i don't think there is any other such taboo topic but i i'm speaking generally what advice would you give to someone in academia who maybe wants to pursue research in some research in something like maybe they should do it right. under a pen name even but like display all their methods like i don't know if that's possible but like maybe yeah. they could do it anonymously maybe do research <laughs> so just an idea yeah um Right. So it's, I think you're right that there's nothing near as taboo as human variation. And the the sort of most taboo part of human variation is human variation and in intelligence, right? Especially group variation. That's the pinnacle of taboos. Um, I would tell people it's probably not worth it to pursue it in academia. And I hate that I have to say that. But honestly, at this point, you're not going to get anywhere. I mean, it's just the, the sort of, if, if you think of it as the, the woke immune system just killing anything <laughs> that challenges that, anything on human variation gets killed pretty quickly now. Um if your career doesn't get ruined, your reputation will, uh, you know, your ability to, it's so bad that you become so polluted that people don't even want to work with you because of fear of contagion from you, right? Like, I don't want to be on a paper with this person because this person wrote about human variation or whatever. So it's, it's truly a costly topic to pursue. Now, I would defend anybody who does. So I'm not saying don't do it because it's wrong. I think people should be able to do it. And I I wish I could encourage them to. I'm just speaking practically. It's probably not worth it unless you can make a living outside of academia somehow, because there's little hope for you inside academia, especially if you don't have tenure. If you don't have tenure, there's no hope for you. If you have tenure, you can do it, but it probably will hurt your reputation pretty severely. Okay. Um, I I wanted to, you know, respond slightly to something that you said just now about um, anyone talking about human variation. So it's just variation um, in terms of if you're... I guess looking into what people perceive as only genetically caused issues because variation just means mm-hmm. differences in in um traits or outcomes yes. and like that could right. mean cultural um and that could mean mm-hmm. exactly what what people are concerned about like differences when they, they see statistics in like income or education or things like that so that's human variation but very specifically mm-hmm. people are concerned about the human variation that they they see as like innate that well they see people who talk about it as being innate that cannot cannot be changed so that that is what i i just want to specify that because it's not human variation it's like the the kind of 
human variation um, that people perceive as like being really bad because it, it's fixed. Um, that's what they 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 see. <laughs> um, and then so I just wanted to right, right. And I just wanted to um, ask you just to kind of I guess close like with the experience. Um, do you regret you know going down this path now? Um, that you've been cancelled, even though like you things have moved on since then. That's a big question people had. Like, do you do you regret it? Yeah, uh, I've thought about that a lot. I probably wouldn't go in to the field that I went in if I had it to do again. So I think that social psychology is is much more flawed and much less important than I did when I originally went into the field, one of the reasons that it's flawed is precisely because of the political bias that prevents people from exploring certain causes of human outcomes. But there are other reasons that it's flawed. Um, So I would go into a different field. I'd probably go into, I don't know, neuroscience or something. But that wouldn't save me. If I studied human variation, I would still get myself in equal amount of trouble. So and, and variation, you know, genetically caused variation, let's say. Um, would I do that? Yeah. I, yes, I would. I, I mean, it's like looking back on it now, would I tell myself not to? Maybe. But I know who I am and I, I don't like hypocrisy and lying. And so <laughs> there's no way I could stop myself from doing it. And that's just like a personality characteristic I have. If I think something is true, I'm going to say that I think it's true and let's have a conversation about it. And I guess I'm happy that I'm like that because for the most part, I think that's a positive characteristic, even if it does get me in trouble now. If I had five kids to take care of or something and and no way to take care of them and I lost my job, then it would be a different story. So then I would feel probably worse about it and I would have an obligation to my children to shut my mouth, but I'm not in that position. Okay. That's an interesting response. Um, So I just want to ask you, what exactly were the arguments that you were putting forward? Mm Tell me like what you actually said and then give me the like worst interpretation that people kind of reflected back to you. Yeah. So so I would say just the most controversial thing that I think that I still believe and that I would defend um, in writing and in person is that some of the IQ score gap between populations is caused by differences in genes. And so just to make that concrete, in the United States, there's roughly a standard deviation or 15 point IQ gap between blacks and whites, such that whites score higher. And for a long time, people have wrestled with possible causes of that gap. One hypothesis is that the gap is somewhere between 20 and let's say 80% genetic in origin. I think that that hypothesis is likely correct. I wouldn't say that I know for sure, but I would say looking at all of the evidence and looking at the theory, I think that that's a very reasonable hypothesis. And that's what I've defended. Uh, I've defended it in talks a couple times I've defended it in essays, etc. Now it's important to know when, when somebody says this, I'm not suggesting that 
this is what will happen. So the, the thing that I hate about this is that people will say, you think X group is superior or inferior. That's the worst interpretation you get. It's a very tendentious interpretation because we can think that people are different in traits because partially, at least because of genes without thinking that they're inferior or superior to each other. For example, I think that my neighbor is likely less intelligent than I am or maybe more intelligent, whatever, but let's just say less intelligent. I think that genes play a role in that. I don't think that means my neighbor is inferior to me. The same holds for groups. I don't think that, I'll give you, put it a different way. I think Northeast Asians are likely slightly more intelligent than people European ancestry because of genes. I don't think that that means that Northeast Asians are superior to Europeans. You know, I, I, I think people vary from each other because of genes and environment and groups do as well. And that mean that has nothing to do with inferior or superior. And the people who use that language, the reason they use that language is to make it seem worse than it is. I, you can disagree with my view on this. Plenty of people do. But to suggest that this is like a, an argument about superiority or inferiority, it really frustrates me because it's just a way to sort of poison the well, to make it seem as though what I'm arguing or what other people are arguing who think that genes play some role in this, it, it's a way to make it seem as though it's more pernicious than it is. It's not. It's We accept that there's variation among individuals in all kinds of traits because of genes. And that doesn't cause us to freak out. We've just learned to accept that. I think the same holds for groups. I think there are other differences, probably certain personality differences between groups that are at least partially caused by genes as well. And I would like to be able to study those. I, I wish other people could, and I wish we could talk about this more. Um, that's my basic argument, is that genes play some role in this, and that population differences plays some role in cultural differences. I don't think culture is completely independent of the traits of the population who make the culture. Um, so those are my, those are probably my most uh, I don't know, controversial arguments and people get worked up about them. And then the, the worst thing that they say about them is that I'm trying to make some hierarchy of races with Europeans on top and Africans on the bottom. That is total nonsense. Um, you know, anybody's welcome to look at anything I've ever said about the issue. I've never even suggested anything like that. And, and anybody who's saying that is, is just lying, frankly. That's just being deceptive. Oh, yeah. Thanks for explaining that. I would just like to um, sort of reframe very slightly what you just said, because you said Europeans and Africans. But I, I always want to say that there are other racial categories um, and Europeans like in, you know, at least what from what I've seen of uh, IQ measurements are not at the top. So it's just, the, you know, everybody right. always just pits those two groups against each other. And those are not right. the, the only two groups like that. And it's just I want to say that because it really frames like the discussion in a certain way. Um, I also uh, wanted yeah, to... totally agree. And, and just to, if I may just add one, one thing to that too, is um, I don't think 
Africans and Europeans are two homogenous groups, right? <laughs> so like people always say, oh, well, you can't combine all of these. I, I know. I, I am sure yeah. that there is a lot of variation within those populations. If you read anything I've said or written about it, you can start with broader populations. That's obviously a simplification. And then you dig into the more granular detail. You might find that Igbos have higher IQs. You might find Yoruba. It, it's complicated, obviously. Um, so, so, yeah, and yes, exactly as you said, people always try to frame it as, oh, well, Europeans this or whatever. Actually, the group that seems to perform the best on IQ tests is Ashkenazi Jewish people. For some reason, people don't call me a Jewish supremacist, <laughs> even though that is what I would argue just in terms of IQ. So, yeah, it's it's it, it I think we'll talk about this in terms of, you know, like tribalism and polarization. But this is just one topic that illustrates, I think, the damage done by people who are tendentious and not acting in good faith in dialogue. And they come into these these complicated issues that you're trying to have a conversation about, and they make it seem so much worse than it is, right? Like, maybe you don't agree with me. Fine. Let's have a conversation about it. I will debate anybody about the topic. I'll talk to them, and we can have a friendly conversation. There's no need to misrepresent what I've said or what other people have said. And that's like the frustrating part about it. Yeah, there's so much I kind of want to respond to. Um, So uh, you mentioned earlier about uh, superiority, people sort of claiming that, thinking that's what you're saying. And I think that's what they're afraid of. Mm -hmm. So I I just think that that reaction Mm -hmm. is a projection. Um, That is what they're afraid of. I I think that's why they do it. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm going to say I don't think it's good, but I understand it. Like, I just think it's fair. And unfortunately, that does like sway the discourse and, you know, what we were just talking about. Mm-hmm. When it comes to social topics, particularly in uh, America, every single thing just gets put into this black-white box, black-white box, black-white box. And it's just like yeah. not reality. Like there are, there are other groups. Like it's, it's kind of insane how right. everything just just becomes narrowed down into like the, yep. the historical narrative and it's it's a box and it's imaginary and it just has a lot of um, uh, cultural power because of the, the I think the history and the weights of history and how like everything sort of um, falls in line with what's already what's already known um, and then you mentioned uh, for your what you were proposing the 20% to 80% and that is a very 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 large large range so I think people I think most people hear yes. 100% actually but even people who <laughs> don't hear 100% they might hear uh, 80% and uh, like right. the 20% I, I don't think it even really exists in people's minds and I've seen people argue um, on uh, Twitter and I and I know that there are people who are taking it in the way that people are afraid of the, the whole superior thing there are people who are like that mm-hmm. and I think that they are definitely going for the, the 80% me personally I think that we don't know but I think that we could we should keep trying to find out. I don't think there's anything wrong with someone pursuing things. I myself can be like obsessive about certain things. I understand that like want to like understand something. And that, that is kind of why it's a bit sad when people who are not um, kind of 
sciencey or scholarly get caught up in these topics because they I don't think they they just see like the the long term down the road which I think is possible like terrible things can happen but another Mm -hmm. sort of counterpoint I I always have when these topics come up is that you don't need uh, any of this information for people to do horrible things to each other like it it, like people commit genocide and they don't need to look at IQ tests or anything so I, I always you know like yes it is possible that people could do this but people have been uh, aggressive against certain groups because they are seen as superior not because they're seen as inferior and then you also have That's tribalism right. within you know like groups that are basically the same thing but they have some tribal um line separating them and then they treat each other badly so mm-hmm. yes people could like use this information but I, I really don't think they need they need that information i think i think that they would do it anyway and i think it can actually be done in the opposite it doesn't have to just be like how you might see it as being superior or inferior so that that is one of the reasons why like this topic is just it's just people's fears and projections and again i totally understand it but like i think it's wrong um so i i guess that's like just kind of what i what i wanted to say i don't know if you want to add anything but i was gonna like kind of move on a little bit from from the topic well i'll I'll, yeah i'll add a little bit so I completely agree with you that people don't <laughs> they don't look at the range and the sort of epistem- epistemic humility that I display on this topic. So I'm not claiming that I know. I'm claiming that it would be very surprising to me if genes didn't play some role. I don't know what the the exact percentage is, and I wouldn't even hazard a guess. I would say it's it's not insignificant, but I don't I don't know where it is. Um, as to the 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 group hatred or enmity, I absolutely. In fact, as best as I can tell, and I've tried to look this up, and it's really hard to follow this, but it seems to be the case that Hitler banned IQ tests. Right. And so it's you don't need IQ tests to promote hatred against people. Right. You need people who are willing to promote hatred. I definitely don't do that. In fact, I promote the opposite. I promote individualism. I don't want people to hate groups of people. I want people to treat each other as individual citizens of a country. And um, it's one of the things that I dislike a lot about what we could call wokeism or radical progressivism or whatever it is we want to call about call it is that it's it's just obsessed with group identity especially like racial identity and as you said it it does just turn into black white everything's black white you know it's as if Asians don't even exist or or different groups don't even exist. And and anytime somebody tries to forward evidence of systemic racism, it's look at how, you know, how the, this group of African-Americans performs. It leaves out many African immigrants. It leaves out Northeast Asians. It leaves out many other populations. So it is, it's just, it's strange that that's how it works. And I, I think in my perfect world, we would be able to talk about these IQ differences without having much trouble. And we could move from that to treating people as individuals the same way that we have no problem recognizing that 
men are physically stronger than women on average, but there are some women who are really strong. Ronda Rousey would destroy me. I don't know, maybe two seconds. Probably not even that. It would be one kick and it would be over. So, you know, we, we can recognize, yes, on average, men are physically stronger, whatever, that has certain consequences in society. But that doesn't mean that every male is stronger than every female. And furthermore, just because somebody has a higher IQ than another person doesn't mean they're a better person. Right. If it did, Noam Chomsky would be one of the greatest humans in history. And maybe people think he is a great human, but I don't think he's necessarily the most moral human in history. So I just I don't think IQ is equal to value. And I think we need to be able to recognize that groups and individuals vary. And that's OK. We need to be able to handle that as a mature society. And, and just to end here, um, people will say or ask, I suppose, why are you so obsessed with this topic? What's your obsession with it? And as you said, one, scientists just get interested in things and they want to solve puzzles. But two, it is the radical progressives who are obsessed with outcome variation, outcome differences in society. They point to every outcome difference. This is evidence of racism, racism here, racism here. If you don't know the causes of those differences, you can't say if it's discrimination, right? You can't just point to a difference and say, well, this is evidence of racism. Because, for example, the NBA is overwhelmingly composed of black people. Is that because NBA owners don't like white people? <laughs> no, it's because black people probably have some kind of advantage at the skills involved in the NBA for whatever reason. So we have to understand the causes of outcomes if we're going to talk intelligently about what counts as discrimination and what just counts as sort of people's traits leading to disparities. Um, yes, and that was something I was sort of going to add that uh, I wish that we could just focus on individuals like that is my my ideal society like i think it's interesting to look at patterns from a big picture perspective but i think when it comes mm -hmm. to legal issues it, it should focus on the individual um and like it like studying something abstractly is very different from interacting uh, with people in person or trying to organize yes. a society around what's good for like i i would think the the most important unit which in my opinion um is individual but um the discourse in society about groups and pitting groups against each other i think it's race now but it could be class it could turn into many different things you know it's just currently it's all about um major racial racial categories and not even um ethnicities which i think is more important um you make it so you have to have these discussions and i i've thought that from the very first time i really started thinking about this topic like it's like you you won't this conversation won't ever really really like die down in terms of people trying to figure out um uh, what causes differences in in group outcomes because people want to push analyzing analyzing injustice in society through a racial lens and that's just one way to analyze it um mm -hmm. so i wanted to say that and then i kind of wanted to start talking about um critical race theory because i think that that ties into a little bit um what you're talking about uh you're talking about iq stuff um and partial mm -hmm. um 
genetic causes behind it. But I think mm -hmm. the other major arguments, the one from critical race theories, is system systemic power favoring specifically um, white people. <laughs> I stopped. I I said that away because I I also don't like it when they, people say black people because it's just like I think it really re reduces people. But that is this is like what people say, um, and I I think that you could also discuss culture. I'm not entirely convinced that culture is totally separate from genes, and I don't really want to dig into it too much. But I say that because culture affects um, reproductive behavior, and then that affects uh, genes and. Uh, I don't want to get into it too much, but something that I thought is a lot of issues that uh, people are worried about. Uh, you know what? Actually, I'm not going to get into that. But I, I, I just trying to bring up that <laughs> people talk about um, systemic power. So there's power and institutional bias, um, legal and cultural um, say with cops or, or judges and you know when you get into microaggression so how people might treat someone in society uh, so that's different from mm -hmm. laws so there's laws and then there's culture and then there's culture mm -hmm. um, and people don't like the cultural stuff almost as much as they don't like any mention of IQ um, but yes, I guess that is how I perceive critical race theory it's boiling everything down to power and you're trying to tear down institutions that exist in order to create uh equal group outcomes meaning not in the mm -hmm. process uh which is something Sowell talks about a lot which is the difference between the the process and the the end outcome which is like the numbers you see on on bar charts that show how affluent some statistical group is in uh, medians and averages, which is very, very different from like the actual data points that go into that, which is something that I feel like people just do not understand. Um, so I guess just give me your, your feedback on uh, critical race theory and what, what they see as uh, the, how they explain outcomes in society and um, also affirmative action stuff, which is, I think, their their solution. Apart from dismantling, it's like giving a leg up to make things uh, equitable. And then I know that I just put a lot into there, but yeah. <laughs> We're talking about CRT or critical race theory, right? Which is a buzzword now. I yeah, it is. Wasn't, I was hardly aware of its existence. <laughs> A year ago or something. Uh, it's it's such a nerd. I'm not even sure exactly what it refers to. Right? So if if what you're if what you were saying is correct and it's this sort of desire or belief that groups should have equal outcomes. No, no, no. Sorry. Sorry. It can almost be boiled down. Sorry to pause you. I just want to specify no. that I I see critical oh, race no, I see critical uh, race theory as blaming differences in group outcomes on um, institutional power, um, like systemic yeah, power yeah. that comes through individuals, um, and that it needs to be like reversed. It needs to be like fixed because it's right. it's immoral and it explains differences in group mm -hmm. outcomes. So, oh, they said that mm -hmm. they're issues with the connection though. I'm sorry, I, I can't really fix it in terms of like helping people based on their race, like giving them a, a leg up to make things equitable. The assumption 
that groups should be equal, not normatively, but just like as an empirical issue is to me, you know, just bizarre. Um, it would be surprising if groups were equal on all things and therefore that they had equal outcomes, um, whether it's in STEM fields or athletics or policing. It, it's a mistake to assume that groups should be equal empirically and that they, you know, that we would accept that just is a, to, to me, a remarkably implausible equal. They have disparate outcomes. That tells us nothing about how fair or unfair society is. And we need to make this important distinction, as I think you were talking about, between procedure and out. We could have complete procedural fairness and massively different outcomes. I think that the procedural fairness is more important than the outcome. That is to say, it's more important to preserve procedural fairness than to create equal outcomes. Because the, the attempt to create equal outcomes is, is an invidious policy to inflict on society, I think. The main point is that it, it's important to distinguish procedure from outcome, procedural fairness from outcome fairness, whatever outcome fairness might mean. But procedural equality, let's say, is we treat so, – so let's say, let's say it's with music or something. Procedural equality, of course, is we treat all candidates equally – Maybe they have a blind audition or whatever. That doesn't necessarily mean we'll have group equality on the other end. So maybe men are slightly better at playing violin for whatever reason or you know some group or whatever. We, we can have group inequality and outcome with complete procedural fairness. And I think we need to preserve the procedural fairness and care about that than the outcome. Um, so that would be that. That's my view, and I think that's that's the danger with this obsession with what people call systemic racism, which generally is just question begging. It's taking an outcome disparity and then arguing that that's evidence of systemic racism, when it really isn't. It's evidence that there are some differences, probably. And we could look into what those differences are, why we got the outcome disparity. But I don't think it provides very compelling evidence of systemic racism. I think pol policing is probably the example. Because what we see in policing is an enormous disparity in lethal force against men relative to women. But almost nobody cares about that. <laughs> you don't see people holding up signs, stop the misogynistic or misandrist, excuse me, misandrist police, right? Because we understand that men commit more violent crime than women, and therefore they have more encounters with police officers, especially encounters that are fraught with danger for the police officer. I think we should be able to look at other group disparities the same way we can look at that one, understanding that we shouldn't expect outcome equality. It would be mind-boggling if men and women were shot at the same rate by the police in, in the United States. In fact, if you found that, you'd be like, something weird's going on here. Um, 
I'm not saying any police shooting is tragic. Obviously, I'm just using this as an example to illustrate uh, not not launching from the difference to their systemic racism. That is the fallacy that many people make that we just do a bad job of teaching people about it. Really, I mean, the discourse is just really bad on these topics. I think what one of the reasons why uh, the, the discourse is so uh, bad on this topic is that people are censored once they try to give alternative explanations for these group outcomes. And mm -hmm. just like earlier, uh, when I mentioned the framing, um, these disparities are only looked at when it comes to black and white again. And the amount of uh, what I mm -hmm. perceive as hysteria um, about racism, I think it should exist for any other similar uh, gap in outcome or disparity in outcome that that might be seen. Um, because if it if something is you know really really true, <laughs> I saw some, someone came in the chat. So I just want to mention that the the exact same disparities that might cause people concern when it comes to black and white should also cause people to concern cause people concern when it comes to um i don't know say asian and white for example or hispanic uh and white and they they don't focus on those those groups so and that's just something something that i i wanted to uh to to point out um i guess is there anything else you want to add about critical um, race theory we can both agree that we we think that the discourse um, is really not great around it um, sorry actually there's something I want to mention um, so I think that when it comes to procedure versus outcome I think it's actually okay if people care about outcome. However, they can't care about it and then censor information that explains it. So I think that they have to be willing to look at the truth. So you can care about the outcome, like, oh, you don't like what you're seeing. You want everybody to like uh, succeed to the same degree in life. I think that's perfectly okay. However, I don't think that means that you have to go and then like demean one group of people who you, you think as being bad because you're unwilling to allow other alternative explanations for what might be happening um, to come forth. So you're unwilling to look at the truth. And then I also don't think you should be coercing um, people. So I don't know what, what that solution is if you if you wanted to help groups personally. Like I would be interested in um, helping from more, um, I guess, more of a root cause. So like mm -hmm. education or um, upbringing or literally just people. I mean, I think that can be patronizing sometimes depending on the, the person who's doing it, but like helping people um, through their own roles in society. If you, if you like see something you don't like, go and start something that's like totally voluntary that can go and like, maybe help fix fix certain issues but i also think some of that is outside of people's control so like i care more about procedure yes but i don't think it's wrong that um are not wrong but i i don't mind i guess that people care about differences in in group outcomes i would even say i care about it somewhat too however i i really recognize that a, a lot of you can't control 
um, people's choices to some extent. So I wanted to say that, but also, like, did you have anything else to say about uh, critical race theory? No, yeah, no, I think that's a fair point. Yeah, that's fair. I, I, I would be... I would be a lot more sympathetic with people's concern about the outcomes if they allowed that there were non-discriminatory explanations for them, right? So, so if you said, look, like, I, I just think it's bad that, let's say, um, STEM fields are 95% white. Well, they're not, but let's just give a number. You, you say to me, I think that's a bad thing. Okay, I, I would, maybe it is, and maybe we should think about that. So as, as long as we have an honest conversation about it in which we allow that, it, it might be 95% white, not because science is systemically racist, but rather because there are differences in competencies or differences in culture or differences, all kinds of explanations, right? So I, yeah, I agree with you. I think that's fair. And I, I would be... I, I, would, I would take those concerns a lot more seriously if they weren't used almost invariably as an indictment on America, right? Because that's what they are now. They're just used to indict our society and to argue that, you know, racism is ubiquitous, etc. And I think that's that's what I object to. Okay. Um, that makes sense. Uh, so something else that I wanted to talk to you about was, I've seen you mention it on Twitter, but I was surprised. I know that your brother is a, he seems sort of left-leaning to me, <laughs> like when I see some of his tweets. Um, but you were saying that you were for, I think you said that you were for UBI yeah. or... More um, left than I am. Yeah. <laughs> um, you were for UBI and universal healthcare. Am I wrong? I, yeah. I think I saw you say something like that. And... Um, like, what do you think about welfare? Uh, just this is just moving to more like broader, like what's what's Bo's political, you know, stance on issues. <laughs> broader, get more people mad at me. I like it. Um, yeah, no. Um, yeah, I've changed my mind on the UBI. I used to be opposed to it because I I I think work is important and that. I'm not idealistic in the sense that I don't think that if you got rid of the need for work, that people would be these creative, interesting explorers of the world. A lot of people would feel unmoored. They'd probably play video games, smoke more marijuana, watch more television, whatever the case may be. And I don't think that's good for humans. So, so my original opposition to UBI was based on I, I was worried that it would disincentivize work. But the fact of the matter is, in fact, welfare disincentivizes work more than UBI would because welfare, you lose it the more you make, right? You lose more benefits. UBI, the idea is precisely that you don't lose it if you're making money. So if you, if you let's say the UBI is set at, I don't know, 12000 a year, if you're working at the grocery store and you make 25000 a year, then you get to keep the 12000 as well. And so, in fact, it's, it's better for uh, incentivizing work. And also, I mean, look, it's a lot of work is terrible. I do understand <laughs> that. And I'm lucky in that I, I, I get to do things that I like because, you know, I, I happen to be talented in some areas and I, I guess I can think well. And that, that helps me do things that I enjoy. 
And I probably wouldn't feel the same way about work if I, you know, if I were a garbage man or something, you know, not that there's anything wrong with that, but if that's maybe an unappealing job. So, yeah, that's my view on UBI, though. I do want to preserve incentives to work. And I because I think what people need almost more than anything, I mean, they need love in their life, right? They need family and friends, but they need to feel as though they are needed by a group and work rewarding work and work that is rewarded by society is one way that people feel as though they're needed if you have to go into your job and your your business let's say it's not the same without you if they would lose something if you weren't there that's important that gives people a sense of belonging and contributing to a coalition and that's what my greatest well, maybe not my greatest, but one of my my big concerns is the way that modern society works well for people high in IQ, but not so well for people lower. And that the, the way it doesn't work so well is if you can't get a job that fe- you know feels as though you're not scorned by people or looked down upon, right? <laughs> that you're you're praised for it and people respect you that's what i think is important so i mean ubi is one way of dealing with this i I think it just takes the edges off of things i don't think it's like the solution to the greater problem which is people need to feel as though they belong to a community and to a coalition health my views on healthcare are similar it's you know i mean i think there are more technical uh, arguments in favor of some kind of single payer system that it's more efficient, etc. But also, I just think, look, we're a very wealthy society. There's no reason somebody should go bankrupt or you know have to worry about getting some important health procedure. Then we can talk about, you know, do we want to have people going to the doctor because they feel a sniffle? for free you know will people abuse this yeah there are all kinds of complicated things there but in general i think we're moving toward a single payer not a single payer i'm sorry we're moving toward a universal healthcare system every rich industrialized country has some variant of that and that just seems like a pretty humane thing to do furthermore and this is where maybe i deviate from other conservatives i, I think the conser- conservative view is that order in in a coherent culture that those are important goods and that's what we're striving to preserve and i think economic redistribution to some degree helps preserve that now i'm not talking about punitive tax rates of 80 percent or thing i'm talking about you know 40 percent something like that 40 percent top marginal rate and we redistribute resources a little bit and we compress inequality just a little bit because inequality, both cultural and economic, inequality is a great source of social tension. It creates bitterness, resentment, envy, etc. Now, I should say I love markets. I'm not... (laughs) I'm not <laughs> fond of communism or something. I think markets are one of the, the greatest inventions in human history or discoveries or however you want to say it. So I'm just looking at ways to sort of 
uh, take the edge off of the bitterness that markets, if they redistribute too unequally, can cause and to help people have dignified lives within their communities as best as we can. Okay. I think we have to move the pause for a minute, move the conversation along because um, for a time, so I won't respond in detail, but I do okay. want to just like give a general overview of my view on this stuff is I'm, I'm fond of the uh, principle that taxation is basically theft. So while I think that we should care for people in society, I think that should be done in a way that is not through uh, the government. So I'm not giving any solutions to that and I'm, I'm not going into detail, but that, that kind of like gives you an idea of like where I would stand on, on those topics. And then I, I wanted mm-hmm. to, um, the last like major topic I wanted to talk to you about before um, you know, sort of a major path forward in terms of polarization was your views on um, immigration and like different cultures um, coming in particular to the to the U.S. because it is a, a country that, you know, immigration is in its history. And um, particularly, mm-hmm. um, I think that people should be able to, the people already existing somewhere should be able to say who they want, you know, in. However, when the people who are already ex- mm-hmm. ex- existing there don't actually agree, then that's an issue because there are people who, um, you know, have a right to say, I, I don't mind people coming in, just as there are people who have a right to say, I mind people coming in. And I, to me, I, I'm not sure how that, how that gets uh, resolved. Yeah. Um, immigration is a complicated issue. And I think that's the first thing that anybody who's going to talk about it should say. There are painful trade-offs, <clears throat> no matter what one does about it. And it's it's just complicated because, you know, the the, the arguments that Brian Kaplan, I, I imagine you've at least seen him or heard of him, makes about, uh, you know, greater rates of immigration, open borders. Uh, they're, they're mostly correct. The economic arguments are right. Um, it is the case that allowing people to move, freedom of movement to to go where they can best maximize their skills, it is better for everybody in, in, in the abstract economic sense. The problem, of course, with immigration is that it creates cultural uh, cultural uh, friction and, and potential fractiousness, especially if the immigration is of ethnically diverse people. That's not because I care about that. I don't care about race. I, I think we should treat people as individuals. However, it is the case that race is just one marker that it's easy for people to use as a sign of potentially being an outgroup member. And there are all kinds of theories and data that back this up, whether one thinks that this is some sort of uh, you know, long, long distance kin selection, or whether it's just a cue of tribalism, whatever it is, we know that ethnic diversity is complicated, and that it leads to decreases in trust, for example, not huge decreases, but small and, and probably important decreases. And it also leads to um, 
political polarization. So there's a book by, I, I won't even hazard pronouncing the first names, but there's a book called White Backlash that comes at this from a more liberal perspective, but it looks at the ways that immigration policies and, and just the number of immigrants in the United States, for example, have led to a backlash and have increased polarization. And polarization is clearly one of the biggest problems in the United States. I mean, just the way that people in either major political party disdain people in the other party. And and I think if you didn't have immigration, let's suppose that we had zero immigration from 65 to now, we would not be in this situation. Now, it's been good for the economy in many ways. It's good for the people who have been able to Im- uh, immigrate or emigrate. And it's there are lots of things that are good about it and morally good, too, that we should applaud. But there are lots of things that are difficult about it. And so my view is, let's pause on this. Let's pause right now. We, If you look at like percentage of the population that's foreign-born or you look at percentage of immigrants, we, we have a lot of diversity right now. More diversity, if you, if you look at, you know, for lack of a better term, maybe skin color diversity, we have more diversity than we've ever had. And what I get irritated about is that I don't think people in the Democratic coalition are taking the challenge that that creates seriously enough. And in fact, they're advocating for more of it faster. And I think that's that to ask of a society right now. I, I think, look, pause on that. Let's focus on assimilation, see what we can do, see if we can, you know, tone down the, the fractiousness and, and see how we handle this. And then we can do something in a few years, you know, five years, 10 years, whatever. There is no evidence as far as I know, from most of human history, if you look at it, there is virtually no evidence that it's possible to maintain a liberal democracy with large amounts of racial diversity. Not that it's possible, and I hope that it shows that it's possible. But we have to admit and, and be realistic about this, that, that this is a great challenge that we've set ourselves and that it's going to cause a lot of problems. They may be solvable problems, but they're definitely problems that we have to grapple with. And I, I just wish these conversations would have more nuance to them instead of turning it into a sacred value like, oh, how dare, you're racist or you're against diversity or diversity is the greatest thing ever. No, I mean, diversity is something. It's a challenge. It's good in some ways. It's bad in other ways. It's we need to be honest about it. And we need to I I think my perhaps my biggest divergence from a lot of people on this also is that I don't think it's immoral for a population to want to preserve its own demographics. Right. That is to say, I mean, if if Japanese people want Japan to be Japanese, I I think that's perfectly moral and reasonable. And if Anglo people want, you know, if if people in Britain want Britain to remain largely Anglo or, or, you know, European people of European ancestry, I don't think that's necessarily immoral. Now, in the United States, we have a lot of diversity already. So we have to recognize that and be open to that and tolerant of that. 
But we also have to recognize that there, there's a fraction of the white population who they feel dislocated and, and alienated by what's happened. And they largely didn't participate in this democratically because we didn't have a lot of democratic debate about it. And I think we need to be respectful to that too and, and try to be careful and, and recognize that their complaints and their bitterness about it as well. I'm not saying we have to justify every, you know, racist, idiotic thing somebody says, but I do think we should try to be sympathetic to that. Okay. Um, I agree with the point about assimilation being important. I also don't think it's wrong for some demographic of people to want to preserve their culture. I think that's normal. I, I don't really know anywhere in the world that would not be against that. It just, everybody kind of highlights the U.S. I don't have any solution um, to this problem. Um, you know, like, I'm an, <laughs> I'm an immigrant. Like, I like America. I want to come here. I think lots of people want to come here. But mm -hmm. I think there, it's, like you said, there are, there are painful, there are painful trade-offs. It's, it's just how it is. Mm -hmm. Um, if it were possible for uh, um, the people who push for or pushing for like increased immigration and more rapidly to be the ones who feel the effects of what they wanted, like if there was a way for mm -hmm. like the, the country to make it so that people who wanted things, they're the ones that really experience it. I think that would be um, um that would be really useful. So I, I guess I don't think that's right. practical because it's like a, you know, it's the, the USA, maybe some states did something, but then they'd have to like break away. Like, I don't know. But that, that's, right. you know, I guess just like my, my thoughts on that. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I agree. It's easy for, I saw this a lot in, in academia. It's easy for the, these professors to talk about tolerance and love of diversity when they go live in some gated neighborhood that's 95% white. And I always thought, you know, like, there's a bit of hypocrisy there and there's a bit of, uh, you you have no real skin in the game, so it's it's a lot of virtue signaling, right? And I, I agree. You if you're if that's the culture that you you're promoting, then you should see the actual consequences of it instead of calling people who experience the consequences because they're not so wealthy that they can move away, uh, bigots or whatever. But I agree with you too, and that there's no great solution. There just isn't, and I think people need to be honest about that. It's a complicated problem. And we should have a more honest. I mean, the problem is we get these topics. And instead of accepting that they're complicated and that there are good natured people on all sides of this debate, we start calling each other names or accusing each other of, you know, malevolent motives, being nefarious actors. And then the conversation turns streams and it falls apart and people can't talk about the things that we really need to talk about as a country. I think immigration is a great example of this because people almost immediately launch into moralizing it and calling you names instead of actually grappling with the painful realities that you're attempting to uh, point to, you know, and it's unfortunate. It's just, it's how things are. And I, I don't know. I mean, if I could wave a magic wand and change one thing, it would be people would be more aware of 
trade-offs, right? As I think you like Thomas Sowell. Uh, I like Thomas Sowell. You know, everything's a trade-off, right? It's one of his big points. Everything's a trade-off. Therefore, everything's complicated. And there are good people who are on both sides of any issue. They're not evil, right? Well, any issue, maybe that's an exaggeration, but most of these issues that we're debating, that, that we are sort of stuck in and that we've been debating for a long time, there are good people on both sides and they just weigh the trade-off slightly differently. And that's that. Okay. All right. So thanks for that. Um, my mm -hmm. final like major um, take that I wanted from you was in terms of uh, polarization over many of these issues. What do you see mm -hmm. as uh, the, okay, what do you think is going to happen? Uh, what would you like to happen? Because like, do you think the US, right. the United States are, is going to like get through this beam, the United States in the long run? And like, what's like mm -hmm. your, your, like the timeline in your head for that too, if you have one? And then what would you like uh, to happen and how? I would like a move toward localism. I, I, I think that's probably, you know, David French wrote this book that just came out recently. Um, I think it's called Divided We Fall. And this is his, his argument, but it's one that I've, you know, other people have made it. And I've thought this for a while is that if you move things to a more local level and people paid more attention to what's happened locally, they would have less rancor about national issue politics about which they have almost zero effect anyway. So I drive over to West Virginia into these communities that are very pro-Trump and they all, all of the houses have American flags and they have their own kind of culture and nothing's happening to them. They're fine. They have a great community and it's basically the way they would like to see it. Problem is they go home and they turn on Fox News and they see what's happening in Portland, Oregon, or they see what's happening in some other city and they're disgusted by it and they're outraged by it, right? And then they see some idiot on Twitter, some idiot leftist saying, you know, we need to remove Mark Twain's books from the libraries because they use the N-word or whatever. And, and they get outraged by this and they're very angry. And, you know, I can understand that, but that's not actually affecting their community very much. And so if people stop paying as much attention to the national and they paid more attention to their local community and to the people who share their values largely and to the area where they actually can have an effect and they know what's going on, I think things would be a lot better. I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> I think what's going to happen, unfortunately, is that things are going to get worse. And Trump is certainly a symptom of this, but he's also a bit of a cause because his basic political playbook is politicize everything, turn it into a tribal issue, irritate own liberals, you know, and although I have a lot of sympathy for some of the views of the Trump administration, at least like the sort of stated views or the underlying philosophy, I have no sympathy for that kind of behavior. I think it's positively poisonous and it makes everything into this tribal competition. Every, you know, somebody doesn't kneel for the national anthem. Now it's a, a big tribal issue that we have to debate. Masks are a big tribal issue. And I don't see that 
abating anytime soon. In fact, I see it getting worse, and I, I really don't even know what could make it better other than a move toward localism, but that requires an, it, that requires an entire sort of philosophical orientation change, a change of just thinking less about national politics and thinking more about local politics. How many people know anybody in the state legislature, right? I mean, even political junkies don't know their state legislators, right? <laughs> it's just, we don't pay attention to that level of politics very much. Our local papers are completely, who reads the local paper anymore, right? So, you know, I don't know how we pull back from making everything national to making it more local, but that's what I would like to see. But I think it's just going to get worse. I don't have any, like, second coming, the apocalypse is here predictions because I don't know when that will happen. But I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if we had a catastrophic breakdown of democracy in the United States within the next 30 years, I wouldn't be shocked by that. You know, I'd be like, okay, yeah, we kind of saw this coming. People have been writing for about it for a while. And here we are. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. I hope that it doesn't come to that. But I'm pretty pessimistic about the the state of affairs right now yeah i think that's a uh, well i guess i like your answer um one way possibly is uh people persuading others or showing others how much local politics matter um i i know it's not as exciting mm -hmm. as the the tv show the grand right. tv show <laughs> that is like u.s right. american politics right. but if people could like be made to understand that like this has more of an influence in your you know like your actual daily life um right maybe that might help and i also want to point out that the the you, social media, I think, influences influences this a lot, um, and I see it not just being people forgetting about local uh, the local issues, but we're concerned. Um, I Me, mean, it's not so much, but people are concerned about even international. You know, like I was tweeting today about how uh, someone was taught some that the the. The person who's equivalent of a congresswoman in, I think it was the UK, I'm not sure, who's been um, talking about critical race theory and how that came, you know, kind of from an American perspective of things and how that, that's like spread pretty much everywhere. Uh, I just wanted to say mm -hmm. that I'd, I'd see it not just as a local to national thing, but also like you know it's global like these these theories yeah. somehow start becoming like something that everybody in the entire world should pay attention to but that's just like a, mm -hmm. a, a point i wanted to make yeah. um and, yeah, and I, okay go ahead oh i i just i'm sorry i'm interrupting but but just okay. to just to point the point about social media i, I mean i think both social media and the national media thrive on and are incentivized to create hate and outrage, right? And so so if you watch, for example, Tucker Carlson, who's a very talented person, and I actually share some of his policy preferences, but his whole thing is just creating hatred and outrage. It's everything is about this outrageous thing somebody on the other side did. And they're coming for you. They're, they're trying to take your freedom from you. Everything is fear and hatred. And 
both sides do it, of course. And it's, it's just, it's depressing. But, you know, I guess it's what you expect when you have a system of incentives that's set up the way ours is, because somebody's going to do that. Like, let's say you and I, we don't want to do that. We don't want to participate in that. Okay, somebody else will, and they'll get three, four million viewers a day. We're not going to. We're, we're not going to come out, have a show called, you know, the Bo and Desiree show, where we talk politely about issues and say, this is really complicated. Like, <laughs> nobody's going to watch that. You're right. <laughs> going to watch it. People yelling and screaming and saying, you know, Governor Whitmer is a tyrant who wants to kill you and take your children, right? And and ah, it's just it's it's really depressing. And I I don't, I'm sure I, I you know I I know that I participated, agree, and I, I'm sure that people can point to my own hypocrisy on this, and and that's true. But I do attempt to have friendly, cordial exchanges with anybody who wants to have an exchange. And I assume that people who disagree with me as individuals are good people and that we just have disagreements and we need to work those out. And I don't know, I don't know how we incentivize that. That's what I would like to do is to incentivize that kind of behavior and to disincentivize the rabid tribalism and the outrage production machine that just runs 24 seven. But I don't know how to do that. Yeah, I, I don't know either. And I don't think you should be depressed about it. I think you should just like accept it because it's literally like human nature. Like, I, I don't see, yeah. you know, it's just like what we're attracted to. Like you want to, you want to, take content in um in an engaging manner and that, that that's why you know politics takes the, the turn that it that it takes and a lot of people don't have the time to understand these issues in in depth and come um come in a complex manner um so they take it in the simpler form which i think is you know through feeling and ideas and guesses and what other people say and people who they look up to and i think a lot of i think it's natural <laughs> for people uh for people to do that um so that was kind of the end of the you know getting through all the topics and uh while i was while we were talking just now i wanted to uh go back a little bit to this issue of inequality and group outcomes and suggest that since I you know have you on the, the call like to think about this I find that say if someone is looking at uh, culture um, someone mentioned in the chat that Thomas Sala like you know uses culture as an explanation for group outcomes uh, or versus say like IQ um, stuff uh, or like family structure which would fall um, under culture or the more CRT stuff, which is um, systemic, you know, power being abused and withholding some group over another, right. and, you know, what happens is that people look at all these issues very separately and they make comparisons. And I really think if someone were to try to really try and study this, um, they would need to, mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know how, but form some kind of meta study, which I think would have, I, I don't think it would work just because when it comes to social issues, they change. So that's why I think it, it, it might not work. However, if they really wanted to study these things, I think they'd have to create some kind of model um, that is taking into account all of these causal, possible causal factors and then weighing them against each other. So you can't just look at one separate 
issue um and then say oh you see a difference here mm-hmm. when when this is more present um then this outcome happens mm-hmm. so that's just it's just something that i want to say I, I don't think i've really seen that um um but i i, I don't know if it's possible but i think that's what would would actually be needed and i just wanted to make that point <laughs> uh, yeah i i mean i agree with that i think the problem is on on some of those issues it doesn't I, I mean, people should do this, but it doesn't really matter because people, I mean, people are just so strongly attached to their views that it's, you know, people have done this, for example, with IQ, where, you know, you have a measure, a better measure of the outcome. So you can look at this more carefully. People have done very careful analyses of how much does nutrition account for? How much could culture account for? How much could this count for? How much could this account for? And if you look at people uh, like Arthur Jensen, for example, in the G Factor, he goes over this very, very carefully and talks about how how large of a cultural gap would you have to see for it to explain this and goes over it carefully. The problem is Arthur Jensen has been so besmirched by people that they don't even bother reading him, right? So it's just, oh, Arthur Jensen, he's this, you know, savage racist or whatever. Like, why bother with the literature, even though he's attempting to do what you're suggesting very carefully? I mean, he's one of the was one of the more careful, scrupulous scholars you could find. And I, I fear that's just what would happen is if you arrive to the wrong conclusion, let's say you and I do a study and we, we do what you suggested and we find that uh, systemic racism can only account for 2% of some outcome. Well, people just dismiss that or they'll say, you know, that's, that's bullshit because Kendi says this, you know, or whatever. Now, again, I, I think we should still try to do that. That's what people should try to do. I totally agree with that. And, and I think people have attempted. Um, I just, I don't think that would lead too much because probably the best way to think about some of this is it's really a religion that's just impervious to criticism. You know? You mean CR- it, CRT stuff? People take it on faith and they use arguments about your personality or your motivations instead of arguments about the actual data. And so it's really hard to get anywhere. Now, I don't want to say nobody gets anywhere because I know people that I talk to privately who are like, yeah, you know, the evidence persuaded me X or Z. Right. And so evidence is important. I just wouldn't, you know, as you said, like you just need to accept it's human nature. What we were talking about before thing here, right. We just need to accept that evidence is important, but has a very limited effect on actual discourse. Yeah. Um, speaking of, you know, people not looking at the evidence, I have been uh, turned off by the fact that a lot of this research, um, say, into causing group outcomes have have has mm-hmm. been funded by uh, groups that I think are explicitly uh, what people are afraid of in terms of like white supremacy or white nationalism. Specifically, I'm talking about the, um, the Pioneer mm-hmm. Fund. Like I remember reading something like that. That is a big, big turnoff um, for me. Um, however, I don't, I personally in my head don't attach research, say, into intelligence or IQ as just that. 
but I can see that that is all people see is mm -hmm. like who is interested in this or whatever. But I think it's something that has merit to mm -hmm. be studied on its own for really, really obvious reasons. Um, um, so I guess that's just a, a point uh, that I wanted to make. I don't, I don't really mm -hmm. think see how it can be uh, detached. And I think even if people wanted to detach it, um, some people would never let it happen because mm -hmm. they would go after them and you know start you know ad hominem ad hominem in them. So. Yeah, it's just how it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I think there's no doubt that there, there are Sorry, some nefarious actors in, involved. Um, and I think that is off-putting to people. It was off-putting to me as well. But, yeah, I, I mean, you're, you're right. But then the other, the other problem is the people who aren't, the people who sincerely just want to have dialogue about this problem that they think is important to to solve they get smeared and they become toxic too so you know what i mean so it's like it's yeah okay richard lynn's richard lynn i know people people have a lot of animus toward him i don't as much i definitely don't agree with his politics but I've I've seen people talk about me the, the same way, you know. The the I've seen hatred, uh, just actual you know death wishes because I talk about these things. So it's it's almost impossible to avoid that. Therefore, the best thing that we can do, I think, is just to try to assess the science as best we can and to leave out the this person quoted that person or or cited that person or this person funds that person. I mean, I understand the, the, the sort of like, okay, look, I don't want, you know, if, if neo-Nazis were funding some research, I wouldn't be terribly happy about that research. But for the most part, I, I think we should do our best to ignore who funds what and just look at the, the evidence. Yeah, and I also think the evidence, um, you know, has to be reproducible. I guess you know what what people talk about. That's uh, yes. that's um, important. Yes. And part of me wants to say, you know, going back to this, I, I do think people who are you know want to study things are different from the general population. And part of me wants to say there should be a space for people to go and do that. But then, like, if you try and do something in a space, then like it's not transparent. And so you also want it to be open. So you know, like that's important too. So like I don't know. Yeah, you know just don't know how to yeah it's just it's just taboo it's just how it is <laughs> um okay so did yeah, you, it's, um i okay go ahead i'm about to like just wrap up the i, I mean discussion I, section I, I, I was gonna do my broken record yes it's complicated it's very okay. complicated okay all right so i just wanted to you know ask some of these questions that people uh, asked on uh, Twitter, just a few, and I think we need to wrap up, so like answer, answer them briefly, if you can. So the first one, uh, you know, be a, a little bit uh, lighthearted. What was this millennial habits thing uh, that someone, uh, Razib, I think, asked you about on, <laughs> on Twitter? What I was that about? I that. 
Okay. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what he meant. You'll have to ask Zeeb about that. <laughs> he was in the chat earlier, but he's probably yeah. it's been going off for us. He's probably gone now. Um, um, what's your favorite book? I think someone asked asked that. Oh wow. Good. No, it wasn't your favorite book, book but what had yeah. the biggest influence on you? I think that was the the question. Uh. I guess I would say I have uh, my two favorite books are I'll go fiction and nonfiction. Leo Tolstoy's Anna Karenin is my favorite novel. <clears throat> and then uh, probably Richard Dawkins' Selfish Gene is my favorite science book. I, I mean, I just think it's it's so well written and it has such a powerful way of looking at evolution is profoundly important to many people, including me. So those I would say are my two favorites. Okay. Um, someone brought up, uh, I don't know, you know, I I guess I can't get into it because it would just take too long to answer. Um, I, you know, I won't say it, but another question (laughs) was, um, talking about left bias in academia, and they were asking you to look at a paper, which you probably haven't seen, which if you haven't, you can't answer. But do you think that there is a, not left bias, but bias against left people? So he was saying that, that sorry, I don't know if it's the gender of this person, but they were saying that most people say that there, most people, including you, say that there is bias against I guess right-wing people in academia, but they see bias against left-wing, which to me sounds nonsensical, but did you see that question? It seemed interesting if, if this were actually true. I, no, I, I did not see that, and I am incredibly skeptical of such a claim. I mean, I used to do this with, with professors and colleagues. I used to say, like, could you get yourself in trouble voicing a left-wing view like how left-wing would you have to go to get yourself in trouble and there might be like a few things that would be you know quote-unquote left-wing like uh, i know um francesca minerva for example got a lot of uh, verbal abuse to say the least for an article on so-called post-birth ab- uh, abortion and maybe you could argue that. Whoa, really? <laughs> wow. <Yeah. laughs> okay. No, I, th- I think it's a, it's a complicated issue because it's, you know, it's going in this Peter Singerian tradition of utilitarian arguments about, anyway, it's complicated, but there, look, like, yeah, okay, but no, there's not bias against left-wing people. It's just, there's, there's a bias mostly about I would say sacred victims group. That's the chief bias in academia, and it's to protect what are perceived as sacred victims groups. And so the greatest taboos are all about, uh, let's say, trans people, uh, African Americans, uh, Hispanics, perhaps Muslims, etc. Those are the sacred values, and those are the way the biases lie. I mean, you could be an open Marxist quite literally an open Marxist. I haven't seen the paper. I haven't seen the argument. So it's tough for me to assess them. But I would just say I'm very skeptical of that. I mean, it just it doesn't make any theoretical sense. 
tell us about your book if you want, what it's about and when it's when oh. it's coming out because people were asking about that. I, I I have no idea when it's coming out because I haven't secured a deal yet, although I, I hope I will be able to. Um, it is about conservatism and human nature. So it's going to make the argument that uh, sort of broadly conceived conservatism is an ideology that's perhaps most consistent with human nature and break that down. So I have various ideas about you know, what parts of human nature it's consistent with. For example, humans are hierarchical, their reason is quite limited, or their ability to reason. Um, they rely on cultural evolution, so they often don't know the purpose of the institutions or implements that are using. There's a kind of wisdom contained in them. You know, Hayek talked a lot about how knowledge is distributed and it's not collected in one person. And so, the liberal tendency to think, well, I can't see the reason for this, so I'm going to criticize this. That might be a mistake because you don't know the purpose. Most individuals don't know the purpose, but there's a kind of wisdom contained in that, contained in that institution or whatever, that norm or practice. Um, so hierarchy, that, um, the limits of reason, the the problems with utopian thinking, you know, conflict is just an incessant and inevitable and ineradicable part of human existence, etc. And maybe the need for for meaning. And I was thinking about, high, you know, looking at maybe one chapter with high culture art, like what's the point of art, protecting art and preserving it, etc. So, you know, a lot of thoughts. I'm doing a lot of research on this. So I, I read like, I don't know, seven, eight hours a day. Um, take notes carefully and preparing for, for this we'll, we'll see but I, I i carved out a year for it so a, right. a year of research and maybe a couple months of writing i hope okay uh that sounds really really interesting um that sounds interesting i i kind of wanted to mention because i had such a such a strong reaction um, to the post-birth abortion thing, but then I thought about it a little bit more while you were talking, and I was thinking a lot of societies do that, like when, you're, when your world is like too harsh, you know, like you might mm -hmm. want to, you know, do that, which I, I don't even want to say. So I think it's something that, you know, could be considered intellectually at least. I, I am against it, I guess, but... It's not crazy, <laughs> but I did yeah, have a I very mean, strong reaction, like, like hearing I, that. <laughs> right. I mean, so I think the, that's I think that's part of the problem with these things is that they're often they're intellectual exercises, or you know, we need to think about this or philosophize about this, and then people get incredibly offended as if you know somebody's proposing we should do this tomorrow. Right. <laughs> and I think that's where the. There's this difference between playing with ideas and trying to have reasonable debate about things and, and promoting policies that we're going to implement in the near future. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm a weird person in that I really don't think ideas ever offend me. I, you, you could tell me some crazy idea and I would say that I don't agree with that. That's right. That sounds really weird, but the case for it because I think that's generally how we should approach ideas. Um, 
but I know I'm the weird one. I, I have like a, I don't know, a very low offense gauge in my head. Yeah, I'm, I'm like that too. <laughs> and it is abnormal. I've yeah. noticed that, but I am, I'm yes. like that also. So uh, I think I'm, I think I'm going to wrap it up. I, I want to say, you know, thank you uh, for coming on the show. And also thank you to the audience for, you know, supporting and sticking it through uh, with all the connection issues. And I, I do ask for your understanding uh, with that. Um, also want to let you know that if you would like to, see or hear more of this content do consider supporting this channel and what i'm doing at just thinking out loud tv slash support and now i'm gonna ask bo if he wants to you know let the audience know i mean they probably are know you already but other people will see the video in the future or listen to the podcast where they can find you or anything anything you want to say about supporting you etc Yes. So I will say, and I'll just be shameless about this, that I am at this point an independent scholar, if you could call me that. Um, you know, I got fired for almost certainly political reasons or really certainly political reasons in, in telling the truth as best as I can. And that's what I'm going to continue to do. And I write essays when I can. I do work for Quillette or whatever. And I'm really working on this book. That's my my goal right now. So if you feel as though that's something that you would like to support for a mere dollar a month or whatever it is, you can find me at Patreon. You can find that on my Twitter account. And I really appreciate it. It's been awesome that people have helped me. And I, I really feel grateful. So I'd be very grateful for that. If you do or if you don't, that's fine. Um, and yeah, I'm on Twitter. I don't, I guess I'm at, at epo. 187. So that is EPO as in Edgar Allan Poe. I made that when I was young, although my Twitter account's not when I was young. I just, that's my thing. So I'm not actually a huge Edgar Allan Poe fan anymore, but that's all right. So EPO 187, if you want to find me, and I really appreciate it. And thank you, Desiree, for having me on as I have wanted to discuss things with you for a long time and talk rationally about human variation and other topics that you seem to be able to deal with and that other people get very worked up about to promote the way to have a calm discussion about these things without getting angry at people or accusing them of bad things. Yeah, I, I think that's important too. Okay, I'm going to wrap it up. Thank you guys for being here again. Thanks for your patience and understanding. I'm not sure if I'm going to like leave this up or, you know, take it down and fix it in case there are lots of interruptions and put it back up again. But I'll let you know. I hope that you have an awesome day as always. Um, just going to quickly mention, because I should put it in every video, that I am looking for uh, support with... Um, helping producing the content and getting it out there. So contact me if you're interested in that. Goodbye.